Welcome. So part two of this uh, lo-fi internet video web experience is, uh, is this following interview with Richard Shotton. Uh, he's currently the Deputy Head of Evidence at MGOMD and recently published a book called The Choice Factory. Thanks for joining me live from London, Richard. Oh, right, good, good to see you. So you've had a few weeks of the book being out there and uh, I, I, I think it's probably causing a bit of a stir and many congratulations. How's it been? It's, it's been really good. Um, I've always enjoyed the psychology part of the book. I've always I've liked writing, but now I'm in the midst of uh, promoting it. And I wasn't quite expecting to enjoy the promotion so much, but when it's your own thing, whether it's a, a barber's, a pub or a book, it's, uh, it's particularly exciting. Awesome. And so why, why this book and why now? Why the book? Well, I think, they, I think behavioral science is still underexploited by advertisers. I think it's um, three big reasons why all marketers should pay more attention to it. Firstly, that it's relevant. So behavioral science is the, well, as it says, it's the science of decision-making, the science of behavior change. And everything we're trying to do as marketers is to change behavior. We're trying to get people to pay a premium or to switch to our brand or to um, buy our brand more often. All of it's about behavior change. So the first thing is it's very relevant. The second though is, it's robustness. So it's not based on the opinion of the highest paid person in the room or whoever happens to be most eloquent. It's based on the experiments of some of the greatest scientists uh, in, in the world, people like um, Kahneman, Thaler, Herbert Simon, Leon Festinger. And then finally, what I find particularly appealing, and I think some people see this as a weakness, I see it as a strength, is the, is the range and the variety of behavioral science. So it's not that there's one big underlying theory you have to believe uh, that instead there's a range of biases. And I think that's necessary for advertising. Advertising is such a varied thing. How could you possibly have one theory that explains how all advertising works from a poster trying to get people to help find the lost cat to um, governments lobby, uh, people lobbying the government. So the danger is if you have this single theory, you try and fit, force fit all problems to that, 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 that approach. Whereas with behavioral science, 100, 200 biases, you have to go out and select the bias that's most, most relevant for your problem. Okay. So I think for those three big reasons, uh, that's why I was very keen to, to, to write the book. It's good. I like that you have alliterative reasons as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. yeah. It makes it easier to remember when someone asks like me yeah. asking the question. Um, why? So I, I, we're probably almost a decade into what some have called the golden age of um, neuroscience, but also behavioral economics, at least as far as public publishing, non-academic and public publishing of a lot of these things, some of which can obviously get misconstrued or, or cherry-picked. So, what were some of the early books in, in the recent era that you think started to kindle the fire around behavioral sciences? Um, I mean, I would say, yes, there's been this golden year of the last 10 years, but behavioral science is often a, uh, another name from social psychology, and that stretches back to the 1890s. So it's got this long, long heritage. Um, but some of the brilliant books around, I think, are you've got Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, uh, Predictably Irrational by um, Ariely, uh, obviously nudged by Thaler. And then some maybe lesser well-known books like, um, there's a book called Irration uh, Irrationality by Stuart Sutherland, uh, which I think was published in the mid-90s. I think those are phenomenal books. 
um, what I felt though was that there was a bit of a there was a bit of a gap. There's lots of books about popular psychology or behavioural science, but there aren't that many about applying behavioural science to advertising or marketing. Mm. And what I tried to do was so but the book follows so there's 25, 25 biases, 25 biases I think are most relevant to marketing. And there's a little bit about the classic experiments that prove those biases are correct. Then there's a bit on the research I've done, but the bulk of each chapter is, well, now you know about these biases. Now you know their effect uh, marketing. This is what you should do differently. And I think that practical application has been, has, been, has been not completely lacking, but there's a bit of a gap there. Yeah. And how did you focus on, because there are 25 that you cover, how did you choose yeah. those? Well, uh, I don't know, it's a slight aside. Uh, there are 20, the, the, the subheading is like 25 behavioral biases that help you buy. And after I published the book, I came across this uh, uh, study by a, a University of Florida professor called Yanishevsky. And it's essentially about how round numbers are generally unbelievable. You know, people, if you, if you, if you do a round price, like 10 quid or 20 quid, people think you've marked it up. And there's an argument that if you do um, you know, 25 behavioural biases, people assume that the number came first and force fit the number of biases into it. So really, uh, if I ever did it again, I'd do 27 biases or 23 biases. Um, and isn't that true of the, the choice of two things? If, there are this, if there's a choice between two discrete things, people prefer a third. For, is that part of the same research project? Uh, it's, it's, it's different from Januszewski. There's, um, there is... Um, there's a lot of uh, research about extremeness aversion. Um, I think one of the, which is, if you give people three options, they invariably choose the middle. One of the, the nicest experiments was a guy, by a guy called Dilip Soman. I can't remember where he's a, um, an academic at. But he did a study and he showed coffee shops around the world, 80, 70, 80% of people choose the middle option. Now, when you ask them, they say, oh, I choose the middle size because... Uh, the small one just doesn't have enough caffeine for me or whatever it is. Uh, but the big one's got too much volume. I just can't drink that amount. So that, those could be genuine reasons. But what Philip Soma did was work with a cafe and he persuaded them to change the sizes. So the, the small became what was the medium. The large became, sorry, the small, yeah, medium became what, what was the large. And then he introduced a large, which was extra large. And again, a few weeks later, he goes back and interviews people about why they chose their particular size. They're still plumping for the middle option, and they're still claiming that it's about the volume of liquid, whereas you know, that suggests saying something quite quite different. Right. So going back to the original question around okay, yeah, yeah. 25, how did you choose 25? Um, so essentially, I was looking at I want I didn't. There are hundreds of biases. Some of them have practical, obvious practical applications. Uh, and I've done experiments in those areas. So I picked 25 uh, examples thing, um, that I thought were easy to apply. Uh, they weren't being applied enough. Uh, and, I, and, and there were you know, definite strategies that you could adopt off the back of them. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a mix of, one, I wanted to talk about biases that were lesser known. So things like the pratfall effect or, um, or, or the effect of mood on advertising. And then for biases that were very well known, things like social proof, I wanted to pull out some of the, the, the nuances. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about some of these. So let's talk about flaws because obviously oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with, this is quite lo-fi. So perhaps we're actually try, trying to yeah, apply, yeah, yeah. apply yeah. the effect. Um, 
and that's something that you've actually published on, on, on online outside of the book as well. If, if people mm. want a taste of what the book's like, could you talk to us about flaws? Oh, it, it's uh, I love it as a bias. I think I partly love it for, as you say, like whatever you do, if you present about it, you can make a complete cock up of the presentation and pretend that it was all part of the, uh, the act. Uh, and invariably I'm a bit uncoordinated. So I'm always dropping something. Um, so I kind of like it for personal reasons. But the bias starts, um, there's a guy called Elliot Aronson, who was the professor of psychology at Harvard. And in 1966, he ran this wonderful experiment where he got a friend of his to take part in a quiz and he recorded him answering questions. Now, Aronson had given him the answers beforehand. So this guy looks like a genius, gets 92% of the questions right. And then at the end of the quiz, as everyone's packing up and leaving, he stands up and makes a pratfall. He makes a small mistake. He spills a cup of coffee down himself. Aronson then takes this recording and he plays it to groups of students in one of two variants. Either you hear the great quiz question answering and the coffee spillage, or you just hear the great quiz question answering. And what Aronson found is that on all the different metrics of appeal, the person who made the mistake became, was, was seen as far more appealing. Now, why I think this is such an interesting bias is sometimes people criticise behavioural science for being, oh, this is obvious, it's just um, uh, dressing up what we already knew in uh, academic gowns. But it, pratfall effect is quite a counterintuitive thing. And also, it's not just something that's been proven in a lab, it's not a um, an artefact of, of academia. There's a wonderful study by Northwestern University where they have looked at 111,000 odd reviews and seen that um, as the product review gets better, people become more likely to buy that product, but only up to a point. So when you get reviews out of five, once the review gets to between 4.2, 4.5, if, if the product has an average review better than that, the likelihood, sorry, uh, the likelihood starts to, of buying starts to tail off. Mm. So we're seeing a bias that's been proven academically having a real world effect. So it's interesting, it reminds me of a couple of, you know, like, like I said uh, before, I don't go as deep as, nowhere near as deep as you in some of these topics, but it does remind me of two other bits of research. Oh, yeah. So about 10, 10 to 12 years ago when consumer review uh, platforms that you could plug into your own website if you were a brand yeah. started to get much more mainstream. I mean, they were around before that. Uh, there were lots of interesting discussions that we were, we were having in Australia trying to encourage uh, brands to have reviews on their own websites. It's, it's definitely, it's probably closer to 14, 15 years ago. Mm. They were always reluctant because of negativity. And yet when you look, looked at the research, at least back then, when we make buying decisions, we want to see some kind of yeah. negative... Oh point of view don't we so that yeah. and then we think is this how it works we want to see a negative point of view because we don't believe that anything's perfect and then, and then we make the decision around well do i believe that person and is that person like me and is that my kind of negativity yeah i think, I think you're absolutely right. i think there's 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 a couple of potential reasons why it works i think the first as you say is people know that um perfection is too good to be true so if you don't admit your flaw you leave it up to the consumer to um, guess what that floor is. And if you leave it up to them, they could assume that 
your floor lies in a really important area. So Rory Sutherland has made this wonderful point about uh, low-cost airlines. He said that, you know, back in the 1990s, early 2000s, when low-cost airlines launched, they were quite a weird thing. Um, you know, you used to be able to fly from London to Paris for 200 quid, suddenly EasyJet and Ryanair say so you can do it for a tenner. Now, Ryanair went out, and EasyJet to a lesser degree, and were really open about their poor service. Now, at first, that sounds a little bit weird, but what Rory Southern argues is, if they hadn't openly admitted their poor service, people would have assumed that the, um, the trade-off for that cheap price came maybe in safety. Then maybe they were flying old jets or they weren't training the mechanics properly. Yeah. Um, and if you, they hadn't admitted the flaw, that was a, a, a potential danger. So I think there's a, yeah, that, that's, one of, that's one of the big reasons. The other potential reason is, um, you know, you kind of start seeing it, you've got you know, VW, um, uh, Ugly Selly Skin Deep, Listerine, the taste hate twice a day, uh, Stella reassuringly expensive. People, I think the strength of those is twofold, that one, consumers know that advertisers are partial, they don't give you the full picture therefore by admitting a weakness you at least show your honesty and if you're really clever like those three brands and you pick a weakness which has a, a mirror strength then i think you've really hit uh, gold so for example vw you know they admit it's ugly but that's because they care about the engineering stella well it's expensive but you know you pay for good quality and listerine well it tastes awful but uh, powerful medicines always do always do Right. So I think there's yeah a number of reasons why it's such a such a strong option. Yeah, I think the mirror the mirror strength mm. is an interesting phrase, and I think you know, I've had a few chats in the past week as I've been going up the west coast with people who are freelancing or hoping to set up their own consultancy or have some kind of independence, and they're trying to work out how to do that on their own terms. And mm. I think I think there's something that's not necessarily about admitting your flaw, admitting your flaws, but saying here's what I'm about, and I don't want to do these things, and that's where yes. I'm good at this, which is. Yeah. Um, the other thing that the floor research made me think of, and I don't know, I don't know if this is in um, in the book or the article that's actually on, on the internet, is that the context of it. So that if if I am from, um, if you think that I am socially more important than you, and I self-deprecate, you might think that that's a nice touch. But if you don't respect me and I self-deprecate, from what I've read, you're more likely to agree that I'm I am yeah. what I say. Yeah, uh, so, well, there's two points. Only one of them is in the book, actually. I came across the other article uh, or, or research paper afterwards. So the first point is you're absolutely right. There is a, there was a second variant of Arrington's study in which the quiz answer only gets 35% of questions right. Mm. And in that scenario, he becomes less appealing if he makes a blunder. And I think the argument there is, well, you have to have a degree of core competence before you can admit a flaw. So if people think you're great, the floor makes you even, even better. Well, the second one, and I haven't read this for a while, I think it's called the red sneaker effect. And there's an argument, um, I can't remember the academics, but the argument essentially is they studied um, what people wore at academic conferences. And they found that it was the people who would obviously and knowingly shun the dress code. Mm -hmm. So instead of turning up in a suit, turned up in trainers, sneakers, um, they tended to be higher status people because they had enough social capital or respect to, to break the, the rules. Um, 
so I think that yeah, you're, you're right. There's a there's a cost to the signal of emitting a flaw that's only available to decent brands or respected brands. So therefore, by doing it, you're 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 making it much more apparent about your your level of respect. It's it's interesting, and you know sometimes I'm guilty of remembering the headline more than the source and the detail, but. You know, the past year or two with what's been going on in the media and politics, there are certain words and ideas that are like narrative or conflict or mm. virtual signaling. And it's like this language that I don't think any of us would have used three years ago, four years ago, now quite common. And virtual signaling is one of those phrases or ideas that's, that seems to have popped up a little bit more. Yeah. Past yeah. Year, right? And so part of like is showing your flaw is some kind of virtual signal, right? And that is if you assume that everything we do as humans or as companies is about seeking status. Can you break down what do? Can you process what I was just saying? So, and then, and then let me know if that rings true. <laughs> I think you're right. It's, um, if, if this type of behavior is only effective for high status brands or high status people by publicizing a flaw you're also by definition showing people your high status because it's only the other high status brands and high status people that are doing it um so then no, i think i think you i think you're i think you're right okay and so if you were in a, in a some kind of workshop or you had to respond to a, a brief this week uh how would you go about would, would you by default include something about flaws um it, like, it, okay so so um not necessarily. I think you have to start with what, what are the objects of the brand? What's their situation? I do particularly like the pratfall effect and, the, and this omission of flaws because the other final benefit is so few, few people use it. If you go back over 50 years, and actually that VW example, I think is 1959, so it's only 60 years old, you can probably, between us, we could probably get a dozen or two dozen examples. VW, Stella, Guinness, Listerine, EasyJet. But you're not going to get many more. And if you think over that time period, there'd been 10, 20, 30,000 ad campaigns. So why is it that an, a, a tactic that is so effective is used so irregularly? And I think the, 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 what's interesting there is that there's this idea called the principal agent problem. So what is in the interest of the brand is long-term profitable growth. What's in the interest of the agent or the marketer is safe career progression. Now, I don't think I could argue that the pratfall effect gives you safe career progression because if you go out and admit a weakness and then your campaign bombs, unless you have a very uh, a good relationship with your CEO, you might well get fired. Now, imagine being the stellar marketer. You go out and say reassuringly expensive. Six weeks, six months later, your sales date comes back and you're flopping. You'd probably get fired because the CEO would think you're an idiot that you've gone out and told people you're expensive. Of course, uh, demand dropped. So for virtually all brands, I think there is a really nice argument, which is if you can get the buy-in of your senior management, the pratfall effect is a very good uh, idea because it will always be distinctive. And we know that being distinctive is one of the best ways to memorability. Right. And it's the easiest way to, to try uh, to nudge yourself into the pratfall effect publicly just some kind of like little little bits of content that can appear on, on social. Is that the easiest way to, to do this? Yeah, I think you, there's been a lot of examples in um, uh, so kind of PR. So famous book, The Wasp Factory, um, which was Ian Banks' his first novel, 1984, that very famously included um, negative reviews. You've got the 
simply running in a lot of those ad slogans um, being, being included. So I think um, social, you've got KFC in the UK this week, um, uh, admitting some of their flaws about um, going out very, very brazen about not being able to get the chicken in the shop at the time. Also, I do wonder to, to what degree is some of this a UK sensibility versus an American sensibility and or what are the nuances there? Because self-deprecation and omitting flaws is definitely an English thing. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, well, so you're definitely right. There are, I think, nuances across country. Um, and you've got to be a little careful in that the original psychology experiments are invariably or mainly American. English and there's a lot of Israeli academics as well. So there is this concern that lab experiments are based on what's called a weird sample. So that stands for Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic nations. So that, so that, is, a, that is a definite concern. On the Prattful effect, particularly, the evidence that I've quoted, so you know, the VW case study, that's the US one. The Aronson work was done with US students. And then the Northwestern University was done with uh, at least certainly American, but might be global data. So it does seem to work in America as well. Um, one of the reasons I wrote the book, though, was because people came back to this problem of a lot of the original psychology experiments were done on students. And I wanted to show through my own research, my own experiments, that these biases work just as well on um, uh, people today um, in all walks of life. So one last uh, question on the pratfall effect. If yeah. someone was getting together a resume and portfolio to either get yeah. into strategy, yeah. some kind yeah. of role or to, you know, to get a new job, yeah. does it play a role there? Oh, uh, well, there's, a, there's a specific example on that. So, and apologies if I get the name wrong, I think it was a guy called Jeff Scardino, who was uh, Ogilvy and Mather. You might want to check this. But he, he tested this. He did a CV full of his... Um, mistakes, what had gone wrong in his career, and then he did a CV, and he wrote that very wittily, uh, and then did a CV of his, you know, in a normal style with all his successes, and he sent it out to 20 agencies, um, and he got far more responses to the flawed CV than the, um, uh, the, posit the, the positive one, probably because it was distinctive, he stood out, and, you know, it, it showed a charm and a, and, and a wit. And I'm pretty sure an academic very famously did, um, did something similar. So definitely in terms of um, CVs, it can work. Yeah, are you, are you familiar with the three-act storytelling structure? Because I guess the pratfall effect fits into, uh, it, it could be, I'm trying to think what it is. It could be, so the back half of the second act, according to some screenwriters, mm. um, one of whom, Blake Snyder, who wrote Save the Cat, he talks about a long dark night. And in many superheroes, that's where the superheroes lost their power and they could actually be in a pub in a nighttime. And yeah. then they get their reserves and then they come back. I, I wonder if there's something in, in the storytelling structures. Yeah. I, I, I never thought of that, but you know, no story is started off quite well. It got better and then it got better and it got better and better. There's always, there's always jeopardy. There's always a failure. Yeah. So, I think I think you're right. This I've, I've never quite considered that particular idea, but um, it does seem to seem, seem to have some similarities. Hmm. Interesting. Now you also mentioned the principal agents. Yes, principal agent problems. There's an idea by, from St Stephen Ross. I think he was a professor at MIT. Okay. Could you talk us through the research, and then could you give us any insight into what's happening in the client world right now around this idea? Yes. Um, 
So the idea is the principal is either the company or the brand and the agent is the uh, employee or the marketer. And Stephen Ross showed that one of the problems in companies is there is a divergence of interest between those two people. So brand, they just want to make money and they might want to make money sustainably at a high margin, but the agent is considering their own self-interest. And the example I talked about earlier, that was about safe career progression. What I wouldn't want to insinuate though is this is something that clients are guilty of. So people who work at brands, yet agency folk are um, white and white. I would argue you see something similar happening with um, copy at the moment. So for example, there is lots of evidence that rhyme is a very effective way. Um, and a, uh, Matthew McGlone at Lafayette University with, I think I'm not apologize if I get the pronunciation wrong, Jessica Toffigbash showed something called the Keats heuristic, the idea that rhymes are seen as more believable and more accurate. Uh, and I've done something similar, which has shown that rhymes are more memorable. Now, at first, that sounds like a statement of the bleeding obvious. There's lots and lots of very famous rhyming ads. Uh, Beans Means Hines, Mule Azura Cura, Get Busy With The Fizzy. Um, lots and lots of rhyming ads. So you think it's saying it's advertisers always know. But, and this is UK data, a colleague, Alex Boyd, and I went down to the newspaper archives, so the News UK newspaper archives, and we looked at lots and lots of papers all the way back to the 1970s. And what we saw was that there has been a decline in the use of rhyme ever since the 70s. So in the 70s, I can't remember the exact figures, say 20, 25% of ads had a prominent rhyme. Mm. And couple of, over the last couple of years, it got down to 5 or 10%. So despite there being no evidence that rhymes have become less effective, and my work on it has been, was this year or last year, and I think the McGlone um, work was you know, certainly within the last 10, 15 years. Despite there being no evidence that rhymes become less effective, we have stopped uh, using them as advertisers. And I wonder if it's about the difference of interest between the expert and the public. So the expert wants to signal to their peers how clever, how sophisticated they are. Now, what a rhyme does certainly not do is signal how clever or sophisticated you are but it's still effective. And I wonder if they, this divergence of interest explains the, the lack of use of rhyme. Totally. I mean, I was having, mm. I've been developing some uh, taglines for, yeah. for, for a client recently. And we, I talked about some of this research very briefly. And I think we, you know, I was a bit shy about putting a rhyming tagline in or a, mm. an internal rhyme as we used to call it in the rap world. And by yeah. the way, decline in rhyme, great rap album title. Uh, and yeah, I think there's an, a feeling that it's a bit childlike or Dr. Seuss mm. and it's, it's not serious enough or serious work. And uh, so it's great to have this kind of research to prove that that might not be the case. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Now you, you've mentioned, well, I want to come back to some other biases in a second, but you've mentioned that you've done your own research and you've done this while working a full-time job. Is this correct? Yeah, yeah. What so kind, of, what kind yeah. of paradise is this? <laughs> yeah, uh, I... It is the bit of the job I most like. Uh, and I think it's a, uh, a slightly different approach to research. The, rather than having you know, huge, massive um, surveys that take weeks and weeks and weeks or um, big data projects, the, most of the research is quite small scale. So we can, we can conduct it very, very quickly at very low cost. Okay. Um, 
So one example, I worked with a brilliant researcher called Claire Linford, and it was five or six years ago, and it was the time when a lot of retailers were thinking about introducing contactless terminals. So some of them had done it, and they'd done it to try and improve customer service, to speed people through the checkout. Claire and I wondered if actually there might be other benefits. We thought maybe that people became less price sensitive with contactless. So what we did, we stopped people coming out of coffee shops and little um, uh, corner shops, and we asked them three questions. How much have you spent? What means of payment did you use? And can we see your receipt? And what we saw was when people paid by cash, most people, about 75% of people knew exactly what they paid, but those who didn't remember correctly overestimated the spend. Credit card, about two thirds remembered their spend, and they were likely to underestimate or overestimate their spend. And then finally, contactless, owned, well, slightly less than half of people knew what they'd spent, and they invariably underestimated their spend. So there was this swing of, I think it was like 15 or 20% between cash and contactless. Mm. So our argument to retailers was, look, you know it's really important to have a great, uh, offer great value, but actually what matters is your perception of value. You can either create that perception by uh, reducing your prices, but that's very, very expensive, will destroy your margins, or you can create that perception by introducing contactless terminals. And you make the act of payment so throwaway, so unmemorable, so painless, that people remember you as better value. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Sorry, yep. I was going to say, Edward Debono has got a good mental model for this. I Ooh. think it's in the book, Six Value Hats. It's got value and maybe hats. It's got a few hat books. Yeah. Uh, and he talks about, it's a very simple mental model and it's so obvious when you hear it, but um, a company or a government or a person or whoever can create mm. positive, positive value or they yeah. can remove negative value. So removing the garbage from the streets, removing friction from payment, removes negative value and that's a value. And then there's adding positive value, which could be you know, adding a special ingredient to, to, to yeah. So that's, yeah, there's, there's definitely something there. Mm. Um, and so what you're really saying in, in the plainest of English is if more of us use contactless payment systems, we'll be spending more and feeling okay about spending more because we yes. don't know what yes. we're spending. Absolutely. So it's an extreme version of the credit card. So semester, I think it was Prelec, um, showed in auctions for basketball or baseball tickets, people were prepared to bid much more uh, when they when they were they had to pay by credit card than when they had to pay by cash. Even if they had access to the necessary cash, they were prepared to to pay more. They became less sensitive with credit cards. All Claire and I showed was that this was even more extreme with contactless. But one of these it's one of these wonderful things that um, the insight isn't just in that very particular problem about payment methodologies. You know, you could think if you're a, um, a restaurant, well, let's make the price less painful by removing the pound or the dollar signs from the menu. That's been shown to reduce price sensitivity by 8%. You could think about encouraging people to buy gift cards. They'll spend them in a very different way. You know, there are lots of ways of making the same price feel uh, less consequential. Right. And is, is that something to do with the way that dollar signs and the touch trigger parts of our brain differently? You know, so it, for example, I mean, the, 
I yeah. think, like, when you introduce an incentive or a negative incentive, suffice it, if I offered to do a favor for you, and I'm sure mm. you'll correct me if I'm misquoting the research, because I can't even remember where it comes from. If I, if, if you offered to do a favor for me, then that's operating in one part of my brain. If you then say, for a dollar, that triggers a different, I think, maybe prefrontal cortex, and I start to analyze it, and I go, hang on, is it worth a dollar? And it takes me down a whole other loop. Yeah. So, contactless trying to solve for the... Is it trying to hit the brain in a different way or just not hit I mean, it? So it's, it's certainly not my, my area of uh, speciality once it starts getting to kind of brain parts and the neurology side. So that's something I, um, I, th I don't really fo focus on. More interesting, the, the kind of outcomes and the, the social psychology. But um, I know that the semester work suggested it. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like pain that, you know, the, the more, the closer you get to the act of handing over cold, hard cash, the closer you get, the more painful the, the the purchase is, and in the same way that reducing the total sum makes it less painful, so does um, removing the kind of linkage with cash, whether that's um, gift cards, ruining the pound signs, paying with contactless. Okay. Even an experiment I did was um, we looked at taking the same annual expense. So this is like to hire a car, you know, have a kind of loan car loan. And we told, so 1,000 people, a quarter saw the price as an annual number, a quarter saw it as a monthly, quarter weekly, quarter daily. Now, all the numbers laddered up to the same annual price. But when people saw it communicated as a daily figure or a weekly figure, they found it much better value than as a monthly or even worse as an annual figure. Mm. So there's a strange thing happening here, which is almost people don't think six times four is the same as four times six. They're putting big emphasis on the... Um, the expense, but not enough on the on the time. Hmm. So, if you're like a broadband provider, uh, a gym, uh, or Netflix, you know, why talk about your monthly cost? You know, you you might as well try and talk about your weekly cost, um, or certainly at least test it. But I think sometimes, you know, these areas that marketers and advertisers maybe aren't influencing enough, like price or or product development. That's I think a very interesting area that we should be getting 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 close to. Okay. And what about, what are, what are maybe two or three concepts that you think are really important for someone who can't quite access the, that detailed marketing conversation, who's existing more around, say, brands, qualitative research, or, or even developing social thinking? Um, I mean, one of the biggest principles is not trusting or at least not interpreting at face value what people tell you in research. So... There's a very famous study by a guy called Cialdini, Robert Cialdini, um, a professor of psychology and marketing at Arizona State University. And he did this very famous study uh, where he worked with a hotel US, uh, chain in the US, Southwest US, and tr uh, they allowed him to change the little notes you see in, or the little signs you see in rooms. Yep. So scenario A, or control scenario, please reuse your towel because it's good for the environment, and again, quite from memory, I think 35% of people re reuse their towel in that scenario. Second one, please reuse your towel because most people do so. 44% of people reuse their towel. Now, why it's a very famous study, and people kind of often people know that effect. And it's normally talked about as an example where you tell someone a, 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 a particular way of behaving is popular, it becomes more popular still. But why it's interesting for researchers is children in a less well known study went and got a group of um, participants. He tells them about these two potential signs. 
and he says, which would influence you? And people invariably say, I would be influenced by the environmental message. So what happens is not just that when we explain our motivations, we're wrong. We're wrong in often quite consistent ways. We want to show that we are um, sensible, rational, um, pro-social people. And if advertisers listen to that without querying it, it can lead us down all sorts of wrong paths. And I wonder if it's one of the reasons why behavioral science isn't applied enough. Because people, uh, marketers or agencies think, okay, I'll try one of these biases. They then go out and ask people, would they be influenced by that bias? And invariably, they say no. Hmm. Have you seen any, any marketers recently wholly embrace this in an intelligent way? And I guess oh, it's beyond a marketer, right? It's the, the business. Yeah, oh, oh, definitely. So there are certainly some huge examples of advertisers applying it brilliantly. Um, one of those, one of my favorite examples is Nespresso. You could say the same for Red Bull or maybe craft beer. So what Nespresso did amazingly, uh, when they launched, they didn't launch it with you know, the, the coffee powder coming in, half kilo bags that you bought at the supermarket. If they had done that and charged the same per gram price they do now, a half kilo bag, you know, which would be nestled next to Dow Edberts and your uh, Tailors of Harrogate for a fiver, five quid, um, it would, the Nespresso bag would cost 37 pounds. So people would have compared it with the competitor set of other roast and ground coffees and no one in their right mind would have bought Nespresso. Well, Nespresso realized was that consumers have no or no real perception of what's good or bad value. You know, they do not walk around thinking I'm prepared to pay one pound or one dollar per unit of happiness or unit of you know, uh, enjoyment. Instead, they work out whether something's good or bad value by comparing uh, a good to its competitive set. And Espresso realized that competitive set is very fluid. So instead of launching in bags, they launch in little pods, and those pods serve one cup of coffee. Now, when people think of what's a fair price to pay for a cup of coffee, they have a very different competitive set. They think of Starbucks, they think of Costa Coffee, they think of uh, Prep. And then suddenly, the Nespresso pod price of 20 pence looks very good value compared to £2.50, three quid for uh, uh, a coffee in Starbucks mm. or Cafe Nero. Now, it's 37 quid in a big bag or 20 pence in a pod is exactly the same per gram price. But by this amazing insight about price relativity, they have built genuinely a, a billion dollar business. Mm. Um, so, yes, I think there are plenty of clients applying this very well. Okay. Awesome, awesome. Um, a couple of last themes and then yeah. I'll let you get your Sunday back. Can you talk us through the, the, the act of writing the book? How long has it been in the making? How did you approach it? Did you have yeah. to uh, trick yourself into actually completing pages? Yeah, um, so the act of, I suppose there's two, because you could answer two ways. You could say, well, some of the studies, the, I first got into behavioural science in 2004, 2005. So I've been running experiments or writing articles about behavioural science since then. So in some ways it's been 13 years in the making, but the actual act of sitting down and writing the copy for the book was about six months. The single best thing I did, I think, was uh, splitting each chapter up. So each chapter could be read on its own. It's, it's, it, it details one bias, uh, here's the evidence, here's my research, here's the application. That, fortuitously, and it wasn't planned, was made the whole process much, much easier. Mm. Because by the time you've written 
two or three, four thousand words, whatever it is. You know, I was quite bored of the, the writing process, I was bored of that particular bias. But you, you start on a completely new bias. So it made it much, much easier to write. So I've, I've found the writing process very enjoyable. And is, is that something that you found intuitively or did you deliberately set it up so that you would have many missions along the way? To- uh, I, I mean, it is a well-known bias about chunking, but I would be lying if I said I'd done that on purpose. That was a, a good, yeah, good stroke of luck. That's awesome. I just uh, think I found it really hard to keep, um, you know, 50,000 words, you know, a single idea that you're building and building, go for tangents coming back. I think that would be, wow, so much harder. And a lot of respect to anyone that has done that. Totally, totally. Okay, last kind of big, big question or section of questions. Mm. What's going on in the media world right now? Uh, as in media planning? Yeah, or, I mean, I say more broadly media agencies. Okay. I mean, what, what I hear, yeah. at least in America, is margins continue to get squeezed, consolidation continues to get discussed, automation will continue to happen. It's a bit aminar about the role of creativity, at least in the large media places uh, in America, because scale and efficiency, because it's so big. And yeah. I mean, I'd have a much more positive take. Yeah, um, I think back to when I started in 2000, and the choice available as you as a media planner were you know, half a dozen media, you know, basically choosing one media over another, and then there were techniques within it to make it more effective. Mm-hmm. The... The exciting thing at the moment is a lot of biases are around the idea that um, we don't have consistent beliefs or personality, that who we are varies from one moment to the next. So we might be, um, we might be altruistic when we've got a lot of time, or, but less so when we're rushed. You know, there's an experiment around that. Or that our loyalty, loyalty is probably a bit overblown word, but our our purchasing habits, and it's often habitual, are shaken up when we undergo a life event. Now, both of those two insights can, can now be acted upon in media. Now, we've, Facebook captures data like uh, whether you're in a relationship or not, or lots of digital uh, can target you just after you've moved house. So you can target people at these very specific moments when the habits are in flux and therefore they're open to being persuaded. So, or, or, the, or the whole mood thing, you know, there's lots of evidence in the book about people are more open to advertising when they're in a good mood. Previously, you might have had to do something crass, like just target someone on a Friday or a Saturday. Now we're starting to see, um, at least just experimentally, ways of identifying someone's mood. So it was, oh gosh, a guy at Brigham Young University in the States showed that how you move your mouse is a good signal of mood. I think it was smooth movements, good mood, jagged movements, bad mood, very roughly. Um, so that is something I think will we'll, we'll come to advertisers soon. So I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm much more positive and excited about the, the opportunities in media at the moment. Okay, now that makes sense. And I think one of the practical things that I wanted to mention is, so mm. when I used to do a lot of customer journey work and a bit, was a little bit more user experience focused, so I tend yeah. to do, you know, I do my keyword research, poll research if we could and had time yeah. to, and then binge behavioral economics papers. And obviously yeah. Google Scholar is a good front door and it can yes, take yes. And it can take a little bit of time to work out the language. Like I, I was looking up uh, some research on uh, donations and didn't have the word altruism in my head at the time as the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that was the front door to go into the research. Yeah. 
And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because you do find research that could help you focus on the type of audience. So from, from memory, I found Australian uh, altruism research that said, the, I think it was the second richest tier, however that was defined, is more likely to donate because Ooh. often the, the, the richest people either think that they, des they deserve to keep it or there's some other bias yeah. on there. And then they talk about the, the windfall effect. So yes. people can feel a bit guilty. And yep. then like bonuses, you've come into cash, you don't feel you've earned it, you're far more likely to splurge it, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the warm glow effect, which is the, I guess it's dopamine or something in the brain that gets kicked off just by us doing something good. Yeah. And you can, so not only can you kind of focus on, on an audience, and in the altruism situation, we were hoping to actually geographically find that audience because it's, it was definitely demographic oriented. Uh, and then you can also map the research against the, the customer journey. So, for example, mm -hmm. when I was looking at fashion research, and I don't know if this has been repeated and, and is legit, but apparently heterosexual men, when they're touched by a woman in a store, a stranger woman in a store, mm -hmm. I think they're more likely to spend money or linger or something, right? Yeah. But that, that could fit quite nicely on a customer journey towards, uh, well, you're in store at that point and you're potentially trying clothes on. So... These things can be used in so many interesting ways. Absolutely. I think, you know, we've talked about the pratfall effect, which you could argue is strategy. Uh, we've talked about rhyme, creative. We've talked about uh, media planning, you know, the mood and insights like that. There's even stuff around um, buying. You know, the, uh, some of the research about social proof has shown funny ads are funnier in groups by Zhang and Zakhan at the University of Houston. So if you have a funny ad and about one in 10 advertisers try to be humorous rather than just run it on a TV programs that target your audience. You should be running it on TV programs that target your audience and are viewed in groups. Mm. And we know that that data is collected. It's certainly collected in the UK, Barb collect it. So, you know, we know, for example, films are far more like watching groups than the average TV program. So it affects every I think, aspect of advertising and then marketing, you know, pricing, in-store activity. It is a phenomenally varied field that can be applied very easily. Okay. Actually, there was one last section I wanted yeah, to, yeah. which was like social media presence. So again, for a lot of people in our industry, there's you know, people get a bit intimidated. They they might interact privately a lot through social media, and increasingly people are going to need, I believe, to have some kind of public presence. But they they're not sure if they want to be that person or like how much actual output to have. How did you personally approach your? Because you've been very active for, for how long now? Um, I think I. Joined Twitter in 2008, but I think I didn't post for probably three or four years um, because I'd been put off by this image of it being I mean, celebrities just taking photos of their breakfast. Yeah. And it was, only, it was only after a while that I realized I have a niche interest. You know, the big scale of things, behavioral science is a niche interest. And I could follow all these brilliant thinkers and over, you know, overhear what they were reading or thinking about at the time. So I drifted into it and then... The reason I started posting and posting quite regularly, post like four or five times a day, um, was as a way to remember things for myself. I didn't even think about it as being for someone else. If I saw an interesting article, I'd post a link to it. And then I changed what I did, and I can't quite remember why. But one day I took a photo of an interesting snippet I read in a book and tweeted that. And what I found was people were far more likely to engage with a photo of an article than a link, probably because you can see much more quickly. It's not a leap of faith. You can see much more quickly whether you agree with the, with the approach. So that's pretty much my approach. 
um, read lots of psychology books, take photos of the interesting bits, and then tweet them. Okay. Yeah, and I think that link thing is a little bit of an algorithm correction over the years as well. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, a long time ago, you could, you could share links and get decent click-throughs, and then mm. I do think that the... I haven't looked into this properly, but I think some of the platforms have deprioritized this because it takes people out of the platform. Ah, so I didn't know that. I think that's what's been going on. Well, that that yeah, that that, that kind of makes sense from their their, their perspective. Any, um, any surprises as far as things that you've shared that have been really successful or unsuccessful that you thought would be the opposite? Um, the I think I mean <laughs> I think the the stuff that gets shared more is about rather than just being an interesting point, it reflects well on the person. I think often like, the, the resharing of things is about. You, you know, someone um, publicly demonstrating their their identity. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to think. The, I think the best tweet I've ever had. Um, and I'm not sure if it was the first time I tweeted it, which shows there is an, a big chance, the element of randomness. You know, if someone who's got a huge following sees it, then then it, then it takes off. Mm -hmm. But it was a wonderful. I think it was an Ipsos study, and they had asked a question about voting. And they'd asked it in two different ways, just a tiny, tiny tweak to the way they'd asked the question. And on one version, people had said, yes, you should give 16 and 17 year olds a vote. And on one version had said um, that they shouldn't get the vote. And that I think, had thousands and thousands of, of retweets, um, which yeah, it's an interesting study. And I think it's fascinating that such a big, important decision can be swung by the wording. But there's, a, there's certainly there a, a, a large, element of luck to what gets picked up. All right. Mm. Very cool. Do you have the book with you? Surely you've got the book within reach. Oh, oh no, I, I can't believe oh, well, oh. it. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a scrappy bit of paper with a picture of the book, which I reckon is almost as good. Yeah. Crap fall effect. So the yeah, it's, it's called the yeah, cool choice factor. All right. And where can people get it? So um, Amazon is very easy, and then certainly in the you know all good local bookshops in the UK, it's at Waterstones and Foils as well. Okay, and then where can where are the best places for people to find you on the internet? Uh, Twitter. So my handle is at rshotton, R S H O T T O N, and I promise there will be no photos of my breakfast or what I'm doing. It is solely advertising or. Um, or, or social psychology. Uh, here's me thinking you could have done some infographics with the cereal. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, en enjoy the rest of your day in London. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Mark. Cheers. Uh, you're welcome. Bye.